0: This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audio book and 30 day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash rich on sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash rich on sports for your free audio book and 30 day free trial. Listen to your audio book anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What
1: time is it? Kids and food.
0: And this is episode 27. Welcome. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. And if you've listened to any of the other previous episodes... First and foremost, thank you very much. Greatly appreciate that. But you'll also know a little bit about my story and how I love basketball. That was my first love in sports. And so I can talk basketball 365, 24-7. It doesn't matter that we're in the midst of college football that the NFL season has started. Again, I can talk basketball anytime, any day. And that's why I'm excited. In this episode, our guest in the rich spotlight is the Billistrator, none other than Jay Billis, college basketball's leading expert. And you can find him on ESPN as the basketball analyst and the guru. So I'm very excited that he's going to be our guest in this episode. And I know you will enjoy uh, hearing his journey and what sports has meant in his life. And if you missed all of the other previous episodes, you can easily find those on our website at richtakeonsports.com, and there you can subscribe and listen through various platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. But let's jump right into the Rich Spotlight with our guest, Jay Billis. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Our guest is Jay Billis, and if you know college basketball, you know he's also known as the Billistrator. Jay joined ESPN in 1995 as a game and studio analyst and has provided analysis for ESPN's coverage of the NBA draft since 2003. He's been nominated for multiple Emmys, and Sports Illustrated has twice named him Best College Basketball Analyst. Now, Jay is a Duke Blue Devil through and through, playing for Coach K from 1982 to 1986, and also served as an assistant coach winning back-to-back titles in 1991 and 1992. And I was able to catch up with Jay shortly after he wrapped up his time with the ESPN Marathon Fantasy Football Draft, and I was curious how much he prepared did he prepare more for the fantasy football draft or his prep for the NBA draft?
1: <laughs> it was by far the NBA draft. The uh, uh the fantasy draft I let uh, I let the real GM of the team, my uh my son Anthony uh do all the heavy lifting there and I just took credit for stuff at the end, but that was really a fun thing, but uh, by far it was the NBA draft, which takes up a ton of my time—not not just throughout the course of the year, but in the month of uh, in the month of May and June. Uh, it's a it's a constant thing in those two months.
0: Yeah, and so speaking of that preparation for, say, the NBA draft, are you doing a lot of uh, calling GMs, calling coaches, watching film? How are you preparing for an NBA
1: draft? I do not call GMs. Um, I, from the very beginning, and this has been since 2003, I think was my first draft with ESPN uh, when, when we got the NBA. Uh, I I told ESPN that I would love to be involved in it when they asked me to do it, but I didn't want to do mock drafts. Like, I didn't want to be calling, you know, all my friends in the NBA saying, hey, what do you think? And, and all this stuff and putting, putting my friends in a position to lie to me because they, they don't want to tip their hand as to what they're doing. Uh, so all my, all the things I do are my own evaluations of players. And obviously I talk to people throughout the course of the year, but I don't do it, uh, in May or June. If I haven't figured out whether the kid can play or not, I'm not going to figure it out in June. Uh, I've already, I've already done all my homework and really in May and June, it's a question of me compiling it and uh and getting everything in uh, in a digestible form so that I can uh, you know I can pivot during the draft and I don't have to look at a bunch of paper as and I have everything you know at the forefront of my mind and at my command hopefully uh, but i don't I'm not saying, hey you know what are you thinking about this guy and your decision between this guy and this guy uh, i'm not I'm not messing with that stuff It's more just what i what I see in in the scouting that I do when I'm doing games, when I'm in practices. Uh, The film that I watch, and I do watch a lot of that, uh, just like I would in in trying to determine who I think the best teams are uh, in college basketball, who the best players are. I'm not calling my friends and asking them what they think. It's, It's what I think.
0: And now some of the things that you also have to prepare for, just on a funny side, is your whole I-got-to-go-to-work tweet that you have with a Young Jeezy. So what's the pressure like these days to having to keep up with that?
1: <laughs> it's not pressure. It's just all fun. Uh, so the, the only pressure is when I'm on the West Coast and I've got to get up even earlier. That's a little more difficult because I, I grew up in, in California and spend a fair amount of time there still. Uh, especially during the summer, I'm out there a lot. So uh, it, it makes a, you know, the time difference. And, and when I go to Hawaii, things like that, it makes it, it, makes it a little more difficult. But it's, uh, uh, it's all good. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and hopefully people have fun with it because that's all it's meant to be is, is a lot of fun.
0: There's no doubt about it. It is a lot of fun. It's very entertaining to get that uh, first thing in the morning. And so I appreciate you continuing to doing that. Now, speaking of growing up in California, so let's step back. And what was it about sports that drew you to sports?
1: I think I, I became involved in sports because my brother was a, a great athlete growing up. Uh, I've got an older brother, seven years older than I am, uh, Dave Billis, and He was a, a standout at everything he did, and I, I really idolized him growing up. I'm, I'm second in line in our family of, of four kids, and uh, and so my brother, his athletic feats were something I wanted to emulate. I always wanted to be considered as good as he was. And, you know, he was a great baseball player and a a great golfer and played basketball growing up. And uh, and so I gravitated more towards uh, towards basketball and baseball uh, as a kid. And uh, it was always kind of my goal. I remember when I was a kid, my brother and I shared a room and he must have had 100 trophies in there. And when friends of my parents would come over and they they might take a look in his room and they always marvel at how many trophies he had he had earned. And I, that, that was a big goal of mine growing up was I was going to have as many trophies as my brother. And, uh, so that was, that was a real motivation for me. And, and I think my mom wanted me to play sports, just to get me out of the house. So she didn't have to deal with me. I, I started in basketball cause my mom read, uh, read, uh, read in the paper, the local paper that there were, were tryouts for the local basketball league. And so she drove me up to the high school, dropped me off. And I tried out for the, for the, the league and and I wound up making uh, what they call a conference team, which is a travel team at the time. So my first exposure to, to team basketball was playing on a travel travel squad, and we played probably 50 games a year all over Southern California. Uh, and and that's how I that's how I learned the game, and uh, and and really kind of learned to compete.
0: What about the baseball side and how did you make the decision that eventually you're going to focus on basketball if you enjoyed baseball so much?
1: Well, it wasn't really my decision. Um, I played baseball uh, like most kids. I played Little League baseball, but I had more fun or as much fun just taking my glove to school every day and playing over the line and playing with my friends. And you know, We'd stay after school and play over the line and, 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 and throw the ball around and uh you know go to batting cages stuff like that i just really enjoyed it i love baseball i mean i was i was uh almost it was almost a sickness how much i followed major league baseball at the time i knew everybody's batting average how many home runs they had in any given you know at any given time during the season uh i quit doing that when i was in college because i just couldn't keep up with it anymore but um when i got to high school i decided i wanted to play baseball in addition to basketball, but. Uh even back then coaches were pretty territorial and uh and I got the idea pretty quickly that if I played baseball uh it was not gonna make my basketball coach very happy. And uh and if look if I had to do it over again, I'd probably look at it a little differently. I'd probably I'd probably be mature enough, hopefully, to say, Hey, what's you know, what's my basketball coach gonna do? He's gotta play me. <laughs> I'm one of the <laughs> one of the best players in yeah. the state. <laughs> and, uh, he's gonna play me, so I should play baseball if I feel like it. But, you know you were kind of insecure at the time and you know your coach's opinion was was important to you uh so i did i did what my coach wanted me to do and and i quit and uh but it was probably you know i don't i don't think a lot about about regretting it that much i just enjoyed baseball so much that that there didn't seem like any reason to quit but uh but you know i loved basketball and i knew that that was what i was going to spend my future on but just because you're going to do one thing doesn't mean you should give up another. and uh, or, or you're better at one thing doesn't mean you shouldn't do another. I think most of the, most kids today, uh, and it's not their fault, it's our fault, but they're, they're asked to specialize. And you know, as a result of it, I don't think they have as much fun. If you're good at it, you're going to go on to play at the next level anyway, whether you play another sport. It's not like uh, like specializing is going to make you that much better. It just doesn't. And then we're seeing a ton of, of, of what they call repetitive stress injuries because these these younger kids are doing the same thing over and over and over again without having any change in their routine. And uh, so it's become a health issue, uh, playing the same you know, playing one sport at the, the intensity they do without uh, you know, using different different muscles and skills in other sports like used to be expected.
0: Yeah. Now you had mentioned, you know, this travel base, I mean, basketball team that you were on. So when you get into high school, were you still involved in a travel basketball team, and was it anything like what we see today, what you're describing?
1: No, no, I was not. I played a little bit of what they call A.D.U. basketball. I played on a team, uh, was uh, run out of Orange County, and was coached by a guy named Gary McKnight, who's the head coach at Modern Day High School, one of the one of the best coaches in in California high school basketball history. Uh, but we only played, you know, dozen games a summer, maybe maybe twenty at the most. Uh, we played in a couple of tournaments. They, they used to have something called the B.C.I. that we played in Las Vegas and, and Provo, Utah. And we played some games around Southern California, but it wasn't like today where you're spending the whole summer on the road playing in Orlando and Dallas and Atlanta and and, and Vegas and all these different places. Uh, So it was totally different. I mean, I, I went to, I went to Rolling Hills high school uh, in Southern California and every summer we were expected to go to summer school and we took um, we took physical education and we practiced during our phys ed classes. And then played in a couple of summer league games at Long Beach City College or Cal State LA or things like that, and uh, and so we played with our high school team. And I know it differs from state to state, but you know that was kind of fun. You know, we got to you stayed local, you played great competition, and you played with your friends. Um, you know, now these guys and my, my son went through it. He's at Wake Forest. He's a he's a walk on at Wake Forest, so he went through the whole AU thing. And that's all he did was travel. And so so much of their time was taken up by and their energy was taken up in the travel part and less so in the basketball part. It seems in a way it can be a waste. You know, I, I think some travel is really good because it's a great experience for the players. Uh, they they have lifetime memories of just hanging out together on the travel side, being in the hotel, eating together, you know, riding around in some you know, somebody's car. It, it, it's great. But as much as they do it, um, it kind of it kind of takes away from their ability to play as much as they perhaps want to play. So there's some give and take and good and bad with all of it. But uh, but I kind of like the way it was before. There was a little there was some innocence to it. Um, That's all gone because of the money uh, that's involved in the game now. And that's our fault, too. But there's no reason that these players have to travel this much, um, that they can play locally and get just as much out of it.
0: Yeah, and I firmly believe that as well, that you're going to get the exposure if you're good enough, regardless if you're on a travel team or not. And so speaking of exposure from a recruiting standpoint, when did it hit you that you realized that I'm actually pretty good and the recruiting process started for you? How early on was that in your career?
1: Well, when I realized I was pretty good, I just finished eighth grade and, uh, and was headed to high school, uh, you know, and I went to a really big high school. Rolling Hills high school was, uh, you know, 25, 2600 students. So I felt like I was going to college. Essentially, it was a totally different environment. Um, and it was going to be a, a much bigger feel, uh, where, where you felt like you could kind of get lost a little bit. And I, uh, my, my, Travel coach was a guy named Dick Spidell, who I still credit as being one of the best coaches I've ever played for. And he taught me more than I could possibly imagine. And, um, and I, we were talking about what I was going to do my next year in, in high school. And I think I had said something along the lines of, boy, I hope I, you know, I, hope I make the team or I hope I, oh. I hope I can hang there. And he kind of looked at me and he said, Jay, you know, you're going to be the best player Rolling Hills has ever had. And nobody would ever said that to me before. I'd never even thought like that. And to have somebody tell you that um, really did wonders for my confidence and helped me sort of expect more of myself that, you know, I expected to be good after that. Um, And that was really meaningful uh, when that happened. And then, you know, when I got to to be a sophomore in, in high school, I started getting recruiting letters from different places around the country And I became a, you know, I didn't know this, but my, my, my dad told me, he told, you know, I was a ranked player. Uh, I was ranked as one of the top uh, rising juniors in the country. And I didn't, I had no idea. Uh, I didn't know that, you know, it wasn't like today where you had internet and all these, you know, all these players are bombarded by all this stuff. And so that those are real confidence boosts for me. It wasn't necessarily something that swelled my head up or caused me to, Um, you know, get satisfied or somehow I didn't work hard because of that. It really kind of fueled me a little bit going, geez, I'm, I am good at this. Like, you know, and I wanted more. And so that was a really, those were kind of meaningful things for me. And, and then I, I, you know, I, I kept getting better and better. And so the more work I put in seemed like the better I got. And that was fun, too, that when you, you know, when you're kind of rising up and you experience some success, um, that climb, you know, to being considered one of the better players in the country was a, as a high school player was really, a, is fun. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Now, how involved were your parents in the whole recruiting process?
1: Uh, I think they were kind of involved from behind the scenes. I think they let me handle most of it, just kind of, you know, they were kind of like bumpers in the uh you know, at the bowling alley or something, they, they, they kept me out of the gutter and, uh, and going toward the, the important part of the, the, the alley. Um, I'm sure if I had, had done something they didn't approve of or if I was making a decision they didn't agree with, they'd let me know. Um, and they, they gave their opinion from time to time. But for the most part, they kind of left left it to me. Um, my mother probably took the brunt of it more because this is back in the rotary phone era. You know, She had to answer the phone. Um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't, there were no answer machines back then. This was 1980, 1981. And there was no such thing as an answer machine that at least that I knew of. So, you know, when the phone rang, especially at certain times of night, you know, your parents would go, Oh my God, I I hope something didn't happen. They they took it. It it wasn't always, you know, sort of the anticipation of a, you know, now when the phone rings at home, we're like, Oh, geez, telemarketer because everybody rings your cell phone. But back then, if they called the home phone, you know, your parents would be concerned if everybody wasn't in the house. That maybe, you know, I remember when a siren went off, my mom would my <laughs> yeah. mom would get nervous. So when the phone rang, then it became a little bit of a pain. You know, she would have to to kind of answer the phone, and uh, we had to establish rules that couldn't call after a certain time, and that wasn't always followed and stuff like that. So it was a little bit of a pain for her, but uh, but it was nothing but fun for me. And I enjoyed it.
0: Now, I know you've talked uh, previously in the past about when Coach Krzyzewski recruited you. At the time, you really didn't even know who he was and where Duke was on the map, so to speak. So, what was it that gravitated you towards Coach K then?
1: I just really liked them. Uh When I came out of high school, I was not particularly interested in schools, if that makes any sense. Like. You know I kind of looked at a lot of these places as being the same academically I you know I knew some schools are better than others reputation wise but uh, but I wasn't concerned about well I have to go to this school or that school or um, you know I was more interested in in the coach I was going to play for because I knew how important basketball was to me um, I knew that when I played for for coaches that I didn't care for uh, you know kind of growing up uh, how difficult that was and and how much I didn't like it and uh, so I, I figured that college was the only time in my basketball life I was going to be able to choose who I played for. And I was not going to make a mistake. And so I, I chose coaches. You know, the schools I was looking at almost didn't make sense. Um, I came down, the, the four coaches I came down to in my decision were Coach Kay at Duke, uh, Jim Beheim at Syracuse, Lute Olson was Iowa at the time, and, uh, and Ted Owens, who was the head coach at Kansas then. So, I mean, you know, Kansas, Iowa, Syracuse, and Duke don't seem to have a ton in common as far as, you know, institutions. But, and they're all in different conferences and the like, um, and none of them were in my backyard. But that's who I, those are the guys I wanted to play for. And I wanted to play for Coach K more than anybody else. So I think it would have worked out really well playing for any of them, but I think it worked out best playing for Coach K.
0: Was there a certain aspect of you wanted to leave the state of California as well, or was it truly more of just about the coach?
1: It was about the coach. If if Coach K were coaching in California, I would have gone there. Um, you know, at any any place he would have been coaching in Southern California. Now, look, if he were coaching at at some tiny little school, Cal Lutheran, I wouldn't have gone there because uh, I wanted to play big time basketball. But uh, but assuming he was at a, a big time, you know, Division one school, I, I would have gone there, and uh, at least I'm confident I would have. Um because I, I really liked him and uh, and you know I look, I look at those guys and and, and the, the four of them, um, three of them are in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame now and uh, and so I think I was choosing you know the sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever whatever Indiana goes, you chose wisely. I mean I, I was choosing wisely. I could not have made a mistake among the four coaches I, 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 I was that recruited me like that, but uh, but I, I've never once thought, about you know what what would it have been like if I played for for one of the others because I knew I knew I made the right choice for me and and playing for for Coach Olson or Coach Bayheim or Coach Owens would have been great and I I know I would have done well under all of them but uh, but Coach K was the absolute right one for me
0: and how long did it take you to learn how to spell Coach K's last name
1: I'm still working on it um, <laughs> so I mean I, I, I I'm kind of fifty fifty on it. Uh, we yeah. learned it pretty quick. Actually, it's kind of kind of a joke. We actually got asked it at the Final Four, and, and all I think all of us kind of nailed it. But uh, but you kind of had to figure that out pretty quick uh, in the in the recruiting process.
0: For sure. Now, how was the transition going from the West Coast to the East Coast?
1: Was that difficult? That was harder than the basketball part. Uh, you know, I grew up more. You know, I grew up a few minutes from the beach uh, in California, in Los Angeles, and and you know so sort of grew up in a in a big city environment not necessarily downtown big city but but you know big highways and and you know I was all over the place playing basketball throughout my my childhood and through high school um so I felt like uh I felt like kind of I was a city a bigger city person not a city kid but like like a bigger area you know I went to a big high school everything was big and uh you got to Durham, North Carolina. It was small. uh everything was closed on Sunday. You know, people talked funny uh you know, I remember going to my first barbecue, and where I grew up, a barbecue was you know by the pool. you know it was kind of uh, hot dogs and hamburgers by the pool um a b- a barbecue in North Carolina meant. Uh, you know, a a trailer with a pig cooking inside of it. And uh, so it was a totally different, totally different environment. But I I adjusted fairly quickly. It took me a little while. I thought it was cold, though. Uh, People go, people move to North Carolina now because of the mild weather. And I I was freezing in, in January and February. Uh, and because, you know, I grew up 70 degrees was, was the norm. And, and if it dropped down into the, you know, the high fifties, it was a, you know, it was a cold snap in Southern California. So it was a little colder for me.
0: Now, so speaking of also that transition that you mentioned from the basketball standpoint, what was that like though, from high school to now major division one basketball?
1: Uh, the hard part was uh, was our team was made up mostly of freshmen, and so we started uh, uh, four freshmen my freshman year, at a time when that was horribly unusual. You just didn't see that, and it was done out of necessity. Uh, we, we had the number one recruiting class in the country, so we came in and and guys, you know, guys needed to play, and but we were playing against juniors and seniors and seasoned veterans. On you know, back then people didn't leave early and uh and if somebody you know Michael Jordan left early but he left after his junior year and you know that he'd never make it to his junior year now so so things were different um uh, but i think the hardest part was that we were all uh we were all learning together and none of us knew anything and so as we got older it became easier because we were more experienced and we knew what to expect and um, you know, I think my freshman year, the way I would look at it, if, you, if it was a fight, you know, like a boxing match, we were we were spending all our time trying not to get hit and, uh, and not not be you know, flat on our backs on the canvas. As we got older, you know, we spent more time, you know, thinking about how we we're going to hit our opponent and, uh, and hitting our opponent and uh, just took some time to figure that out.
0: And so what were the, some of the things that Coach K was helping you guys that f- your freshman year to get to the point where you know developing you guys come your senior year? I mean, you're one of the dominant teams in college basketball. So what were some of the principles that he was teaching you guys early on?
1: Early on, I think it was just developing habits, You know, developing winning habits and championship habits and, and doing it every day um, that there, there should be no difference in the performance you give You know, when you're playing a team that you're vastly superior to as to when you're playing one of the top teams in the country, you know, there's no, there's no such thing necessarily as a big game. You know, your performance, every game's a big game. Every game's an important game. And, uh, and so we have to learn that because I think when you're a high school, a high school player, you kind of, you kind of think, okay, well, this is a big game. That's a big game. I know what a big game is, but you don't practice the same way all the time. You don't necessarily compete. Uh, on every play, uh, like you do when you're uh, you know, when you get to college, uh, which is a necessity, and and so I was kind of building those building championship habits from the time we were freshmen, uh, uh, and it took time for for us to get it, frankly, and uh, and you know you kind of get you you hit walls and uh, and you learn really hard lessons, and it, it toughens you up and. Yeah, you know, we were, you know, we were our sophomore year. We ranked in the top, you know, top 10. Uh, and then uh, and then our junior year, we were number two in the country at one point. So we, we had really good teams before we got to be seniors. But when we were seniors, uh, then all of a sudden that that group that started together as freshmen, you know, we were men and uh, and we'd been through it. Enough to where you know we knew, you know we knew what we wanted, and we were single-minded in purpose, not only individually but collectively, and uh, and we wound up having one of the great years um, that any Duke team's ever had. I mean, we won more games that year than any team in the history of the game had up to that point. We won 37 games. That record stood for, you know, up until 2012, I think. Um, so it was a uh, it was a great year. We just didn't didn't cap it off. We wound up getting beat by a bucket in the championship game and. Had we won that, we would have been thirty-eight and two, and, and would have been, I think, uh, considered one of the one of the great teams. But if you don't finish it off, you know those discussions don't last very long.
0: Now, so how devastating was that to not to cap it off?
1: It was really hard. It still it's still uh, it still leaves a, a bad taste in your mouth a sort of pit in your stomach that uh, you know we were we were one bucket away from and, and you know from being really considered one of the great teams of all time. And uh, you know to have won 38 games, I mean that that's still the that's the record now. So we'd still hold the record, and with the caliber competition that we played that year, I mean it, it's almost unthinkable to to have to win 37 games. Um, I, I don't know. It, it just it would it would be nice to have that that champion label that went with that team because it was a championship caliber team. You know, look whether we won that game or not, we're the same team. But you know how it is in, in our society. I mean, if you if you don't have the if you don't have the championship that goes with it, then then people can take shots at it, and and I get it. That's the way it is. But but it 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 ate at us pretty heavy right afterwards, and it's really kind of never gone away. And even you know, I was a part of uh, as a grad assistant on a couple of championship teams, Coach K's first two title teams at Duke in '91 and '92. And I know some of the Duke players. We talked about it afterwards. Tommy Amaker was a teammate of mine. We we talked about it. That it's not the same. Um, you know, winning one as a player is not the same as winning one as a coach. Uh, so it, it kind of never goes away.
0: Yeah. So what's the difference
1: then? Well, as a player, you're you're the one that's responsible for it. As a coach, you're kind of an orchestrator. And is, I think it's the same thing as as what's it like being a conductor versus being somebody who plays in the orchestra. You know, like you're making the music out there, and, and you only have a few opportunities. Um, so, as a player, you know it 's probably less for guys now, but as a player you 've got four four chances you know as a coach, you got forty and and you know I, I, that 's the funny part like it 's not physically taxing to coach um it may be emotionally taxing, but it's not physically taxing so you know you you can coach all day you can 't play all day and uh you, you have a lot of i mean it takes a lot out of you physically to play um it 's nowhere near the physical challenge as a coach. Um, so you know, I I think it's a way it, it, to me. Look, it's way more meaningful to do it as a player, but not to say it's not meaningful to do it as a coach. It's incredibly meaningful, but it's it's far more meaningful to do it as a player.
0: I can understand that. So speaking of that graduate assistant, you're in coaching, but made the decision of you know when you received your law degree while you're a grad assistant at Duke that it was going to be a better fit for your family to go practice law. So uh, how was that decision? Was it a difficult decision to walk away from basketball?
1: A little bit, but, but it was the right thing for us. And uh, so, you know, on one level I kind of thought, well, you know, it's the right thing for me to do. And it's, it's a, it's a we decision, not a me decision. Uh, But you know, then afterwards, I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe it was the right decision because if I give it up this easily, uh, you know, I, I think the the truth is I wanted I wanted my wife and and our family to be happy more than I wanted to be a coach. And you know, when you, I think, any time you get into coaching, it's not just it's not just on the coach; it's on the whole family. It's a sacrifice the whole family makes. That's probably true of more professions than just. Uh, coaching but but it's not as profound of a, of a commitment uh, as the military but but it's it's not the only thing but I, I just felt like it wasn't it wasn't right um, if my wife wasn't all in with it if it wasn't something that that we were both committed to it wasn't the right thing to do and uh, we didn't want to move around a lot and coaching if you're gonna coach it dictates that that you're gonna you're gonna have to move a lot. And uh, it's rare that coaches can be in one place for, to watch their kids grow up. It's really rare. And so I just didn't – didn't, we didn't want that. And so we decided against it. And uh, I knew I could do other things and, uh, and, and did. Uh, they may not be as satisfying in the way sports was. But it's awfully satisfying. And, and I, I have a great time doing what I'm doing. I don't have skin in the game but when I go to a game. It's not a winner and a loser in my job. But, uh, but that's the only downside is that, that it's not quite as competitive as I'm used to or something or, or as I would like. But, but if, if, if that's the, the worst thing you can say about it, then I got a pretty good gig here.
0: And so then describe how, after leaving basketball, you evolve into a full time basketball broadcaster.
1: You know, it's funny. I never really left basketball because I was broadcasted the year after I uh, I left uh, left Duke as grad assistant there. I was there three years. And then The following year, I taken a, a you know I was practicing law full time in Charlotte with Moore and Van Allen, and then I got an offer to do uh, basketball games on the radio. So I started doing radio games, and I did that for three years or so, maybe maybe even a little longer. Um, and my thought process there was, you know, this is going to be hard with my schedule. Um, and, and having a full-time job that I'm uh, as a professional that I'm invested in but you know if, if it gets too difficult I'll quit and why would I quit before I start so I'll, I'll do it and if it doesn't work out I can quit and I enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun and after a period of years when ESPN you know, I got with ESPN and was doing games and it became you know, it became a, a full-time job in addition to a full-time job it came time where I needed to make a decision. And uh, and so I decided to, I didn't think it was a risk uh, because I could always hang a shingle out and make a good living as a lawyer, even though I took some time, you know, maybe took a, a detour and tried the broadcast thing full time. But when I when I committed myself to it full time as a broadcaster, uh geez, it's been 15, 16 years now, maybe a little bit longer, where I've been doing nothing but this, uh, it, it, it was seamless. And uh, and one thing I found out was there's a heck of a lot more stress in, in law practice than uh, than there is in broadcasting because I, I I my stress levels went way down. I didn't know that I was under the kind of stress I was under as a lawyer because it was just it was all I knew. And uh, but when I quit, um, I felt better. I was happier. I slept better. I did, <laughs> it was it was way better. And That's yeah. not to say that I, I had problems as a lawyer. It's just that man, I had a lot on my plate. And uh, and, you know, basketball is all fun. I mean, I work really hard and I spend all my time on it, but I enjoy I enjoy it so much. It just doesn't seem like work. And, uh, and so that's been a big change.
0: Now, one of the reasons that you're one of the most well-respected broadcasters in college basketball, if not the most well-respected, is obviously the preparation that you put into it, uh, but also that you're not afraid to be opinionated and use your platform to share your opinions, especially in reference to the NCAA and paying student-athletes, NCAA transfer rules. Uh, but before you got this platform, when you were a player at Duke, did you guys talk about about these type of issues,
1: we did. Um, you know, I, I wound up becoming a, a policy wonk on NCAA issues, if you will, because I was a member of an NCAA committee when I was in school. I was uh, I was a member of the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee uh, for a couple of years while I was a junior and senior in college. And I worked with—I worked on that committee with some of the truly great administrators in NCAA history, you know, Bill Flynn from Boston College and Wayne Duke, who was the Commissioner of the Big Ten, and Dick Perry from Southern Cal. There were a whole bunch I, I could and should mention. And I saw things that I didn't like uh, in the way NCAA policy was formulated and the premises on on which decisions were made, which I felt were incorrect. Um, I did speak out at the time, but back then you were kind of in a nice way told to sit down and shut up that thanks for the input, but we're not interested in what you have to say. Um, nobody ever said that, but that was the vibe you got. And and you realized pretty quickly that uh, you were rewarded for, you know, parroting the company line and uh, and not so much if you, if you didn't. And so, you know, I, I wasn't an idiot. I, I didn't say what I was supposed to at the time. But when I did bring up things, they got shot down pretty quickly. And so we, we as players did discuss it. It didn't dominate our thoughts because we were busy, uh, and there was nothing we could do about it. But there, there, there were there were conversations. I mean, there was a guy named Dick DiVenzio back then, who passed away several years ago, who was a, a point guard at Duke in the '60s or '70s, excuse me, and he was one of the one of the first advocates of players getting paid and how kind of unfair it was that, that players were being used to generate revenue. But yet, if they took a sandwich, they were. They were ineligible. And, and I remember him having a discussion with me about, you know, what, what, would, what would be our, our interest in the idea of, of boycotting the NCAA tournament or boycotting the Final Four. And I remember my response to him was, well, let's talk about this next year. You know, I was a senior. You know, what the hell? We, gonna, we weren't going to do it then. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we'd work to get there. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to walk out. But, you know, I was a younger younger kid at the time. I don't think I would do it now because the, the, but, but, um, I would be more open to some sort of protest or boycott during the season. Um, and and I do think now it's doable more than ever without just without disrupting play, but disrupting, uh, the commerce behind the play. Like you could easily in basketball, uh, go out to center court, right? as one of these games about to start during the regular season, shake hands with your opponent and everybody walk into the practice facility next door and then just play there. And it w- they wouldn't be able to televise it and none of the fans would be able to get in, but you still play the game and have it count. And that, that's where the players could really do something that would show their economic power without, without them having to say, well, we're not playing. You could still play. Uh, and that way they can't, nobody can say, well, they're not playing. Or, yeah, we're playing. We're just playing where we want to play. And, uh, uh, sorry that, uh, you know, sorry that the TV cameras and the fans can't get in, but we're not party to your contracts, And you've said so in federal court, you, you, they could do that easily and make their point.
0: And do you foresee that that could happen in the near future?
1: I don't know. I wouldn't say near future. I mean, it, it, it's more likely to happen in basketball because there are fewer moving parts and, you know, basketball, the players are a little bit more independent thinkers. You know, football is more of a military mentality, and the the coaches have a lot more power over the the players than they do in basketball. And, and you can tell that just by you know, a few years ago, uh, there was a little bit of a movement in college football where they had something called All Players United. So players wrote APU on their tape or maybe a headband or something like that. And the football players got chastised by their coaches over it, sort of, if we're going to do something, we need to do it as a team and all that stuff. And so they got hammered for that. And so there's a lot of disincentives for players to do anything in football. I think basketball uh, is a little more uh, sort of independent-minded. That's not—that's not to take a shot at football players. It's just sort of the nature of 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 the game. Like football coaches are are far more rigid in their thinking than basketball coaches are. Maybe that's because they're in charge of you know 80 guys instead of 15. Um, But uh, but but I think I think they're far more independent uh, on the on the basketball side.
0: So now one of the things that I consistently hear once these topics come up is that O.J. Oh, Billis is complaining about how unfair it is for the student athletes. But is that actually the case?
1: You know, to me, when I look at, you know, I don't go to basketball games, you know, looking around as I'm about to go on the air thinking, oh, my God, this is so horribly unfair. I mean, you know, it, I, I enjoy the competition for what it is. But when it's time to talk about policy, um, there's no escaping it. That, that this is a multi-billion dollar business, and it, it, it's not like Ed McMahon just knocked on the NCAA's door and handed them a check for billions of dollars, and they, they were like, oh my God, this just fell into our lap. All the decisions that that have been made on the NCAA le- level, and I don't mean the office in Indianapolis, I mean all the institutions and all the conferences, they, they, they've built this business up intentionally and methodically over the years. And have been seeking out these revenue streams and selling these players to television year after year after year. And so to me, if the players are old enough to sell for billions of dollars, they're old enough to participate in, in the business. And that's not to say that that they have to be paid or they, quote unquote, should be paid. But each institution should be allowed to pay if they want to. Um, just like, you know, schools don't have to give scholarships if they don't want to. They do. But because the market dictates that they, they, they should, but they don't have to and they don't have to pay any of their employees. They don't have to pay their coaches millions of dollars if they don't want to. They make those decisions on their own and they know exactly who to pay and they know exactly how much. And, you know, all these schools have twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 employees each. You know, they don't, sit, they don't sit there wringing their hands going, well, do we pay everyone the same? Or, or, you know, all these people work really hard. Do we pay the landscapers the same as we pay the professors? Do we pay the professors the same as we pay the basketball coach? Do we pay the assistant coach in lacrosse the same as we pay the, the head coach in football? They don't do that. And so these ideas that they, they, the idea that they can't sort of compensate the players fairly and figure it out is, is a lie. They know exactly who to recruit. And they know exactly who to put in the game when they need to win. So they know who to pay. And if they want to pay, I think they should be allowed to. And that's that's really the issue is the cartel restriction industry wide against paying. That's the problem. It's not, you know, hey, Wichita State, how much will you pay? They can figure that out on their own. They don't need anybody's help to do that. But they need the restriction taken away. And this amateurism thing, Richmond, is is totally meaningless. Like amateurism doesn't do anything for anyone it doesn't make the players better. It doesn't make them better people. It doesn't make them better. Students it doesn't make them better athletes. Uh, it doesn't mean they love the game more. That's one of the great fallacies of all time. Um, you know, I didn't love basketball because I was an amateur. I loved basketball when I was a pro. I loved it. I love it. Now when I'm paid, I I've loved it forever. You know, money has money and, and love of the game are not mutually exclusive so it's just a made up made up deal that's a uh, it's a remnant of of the old sort of amateurism which you know if you go back to you know old england where amateurism really really took hold all that was was the the moneyed elite did not want to compete against the common man and the only way to eliminate the common man from competition was to make it amateur And so therefore, they couldn't afford to play against the wealthy handlebar mustachioed men that played, you know, played tennis at Wimbledon and all that stuff uh, and and ran in the Olympics. Um, That's all it was. And that's all it was in in college sports uh, when amateurism came in. It was just the the Ivy League elites did not want to play against the common man. And uh, and now, you know, now it's about money. And uh, and I don't think that's right.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. You know, when I was getting into coaching... It used to drive me crazy, just the whole aspect of the restricted earnings coach. I just thought that was absurd at the time. Now, I know that has obviously been changed and uh, through the help of the the court system, and I'm hoping something will happen for the athletes because I'm all about the free market. So I agree with you from that standpoint, and I don't think it's going to be this unbelievable Pandora's box is opened up and all of a sudden it's the wild, wild west. I just don't see that happening. So what's your thoughts on will it be a – you know, just mutiny happens if athletes get paid.
1: No, I mean, to the extent there is a Pandora's box, it's already been opened. You know, I mean, it's a multi-billion-dollar business, and the idea somehow that the entire industry teeters on athletes being unpaid is so laughable. It's absurd. Uh, you know, the, the the best players all go to the same schools anyway, and they do it because uh, pay is restricted. And so, what you see now are schools building these gigantic facilities and, and private travel and all these different things that are done for recruiting. You know, the, the, these facilities aren't being built uh, out of some, you know, built benevolent gift to athletes. They're being built to attract athletes and to attract talent because the talent can't be paid. And, uh, you know, they're not doing the same thing in building, you know, tremendous facilities for their staff, they just pay the staff money. Uh, and that's what attracts that's what attracts employees and the opportunity to work at a particular place. Um, so I don't I don't see there being a problem. Once I, I think it would be incredibly orderly uh, if if this were to happen um, and and we had a free market system for players just like we do for everyone else. How do I think it's going to happen? I, I think Richmond that, that what we're going to see is. Uh, the courts are going to become more involved as we go forward, and I think the courts are increasingly coming to the realization that these are antitrust violations. Uh, that 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 um, you know that the NCAA violates antitrust law with its rules. They still kind of fall for for the NCAA's you know uh, their testimony somehow that. That the whole world would collapse if, if, uh, and that, that amateurism is such an integral part of the the product and all that, which is total nonsense. But they're starting to catch on to that. So the courts will be one component. The players will be another. Uh, and then the marketplace will be another, um, you know, we'll see. You, you can't keep making money hand over fist like this and not see an increase in in, in what the player gets. You know, we're, we're, you know, right now, the Big Ten went from uh, I think the Big Ten was making, you know, they they were throwing off twenty two, twenty three million twenty three million dollars per school. That's going to go up into the 40s in the next couple of years with their new television contracts. They just gave Jim Delaney, who's a great guy, the commissioner of the Big Ten. He just got a twenty million dollar bonus. Now what could anyone possibly do for twenty million dollars? Because they say they lose money all the time. You know, <laughs> know. They, they're, they're always falling all over themselves talking about how much money they lose and boy nobody makes any money. And everybody else is paid based upon revenue. I mean that, that's what Jim Delaney got that twenty million dollar bonus for, is because the, the Big Ten's revenues are going way up. And so why are the players somehow cut out of this and, and all you know, they, they have to be amateurs but no other student has to be exactly like, you know, no no other student, whether they're on, on scholarship or not is restricted in any way in what they can earn while in their school and affecting their status as students. So it it doesn't make any sense why a player should have to be.
0: And I agree 100%. And now going back real quick to a Twitter question. And one of the things that I noticed is that you only follow one person and that's Lacey's legacy. Uh, Can you share the story behind that?
1: Well, it, it, it all, it all kind of started when I got on Twitter, I didn't know how it worked. And so I didn't follow anybody for the longest time. And I started getting uh, people, you know, asking me about like, why don't you follow anybody too arrogant or whatever? And I, I thought it was funny. And so I made jokes about, about, yeah, I'm too, uh, I am too arrogant. I'm too good to follow You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. And so created that kind of, kind of persona. And, but I, I figured that at some point um, it would, it would be helpful Um, because I'm on Twitter all the time and I read everybody and all that stuff but I just don't I don't follow it I don't follow people on on my Twitter feed my main Twitter feed so uh, but I thought you know at some point maybe the 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 goodwill that you've built up by following nobody or the controversy or whatever you want to call it and there was a young girl named Lacey Holdsworth who passed away a a couple years ago Uh, she was a Michigan State fan and Got to know her story a little bit, and then I started following her, and uh, and that was that was what it was used for, and uh, and I've been following her ever since, and that's that's my only follow.
0: I figured you were intentional about that one follow, and I do remember Lacey's story, and that is a great cause for sure, and I know you've also been impacted by a lot of people throughout your life, Jay, but it all started with sports. So can you sum up what sports has meant
1: in your life? Well, it's been everything. It's something that I was really interested in. So I don't necessarily think sports is the the only thing. It's just the the primary thing. I mean, I had great teachers uh, in in junior high school, high school that uh, that helped me sort of reach for my best in whatever I was doing. So I understood sort of basketball and and sports more than anything, That I got an immediate result from that. Um, but I learned to apply those lessons and everything. And I had some I had some great teachers. I had a I had a drama teacher named Billy Kramer who probably taught me as much as any coach did about expecting the most from myself and how to concentrate on what I was doing while I was doing it, and uh, and put other things out of my mind that were taking away my uh, my concentration, my energy on what was in front of me. Um, so it's just, a, it was, you know, sports was the primary thing and it was a thing that people relate to more than anything. Uh, but, but I, I, was fortunate that I had so many great teachers that, that really helped me to apply those things in, in areas that I might not have thought were as important to me, but turned out to be equally as important to me in, in their impact uh, on my life later on.
0: Makes perfect sense. And now, what about some words of wisdom that you'd like to share? Any phrases, quotes, mottos that have been impactful in your life?
1: I don't know that I have necessarily mottos that I go by, but uh, but there's something I say to myself every day, uh, multiple times a day, that, that I learned from Coach K, and that's next play. That when something happens, um, positive or negative, and it's time to move on, you know, next play. I mean, there's an, you have to be ready for the next play. And uh, so it, it kind of helps me refocus myself on, on, Hey man, let it go. And, uh, and let's move on to the next thing. Cause the next thing's uh, it's right in front of you and what I'm worrying about in the past. And I need to let that go and concentrate on the next play. So I, I say that to myself multiple times a day and uh, it's always been a, a great help to me.
0: I firmly believe that as well, Jay, as I try to tell my kids at times, you've got to have somewhat amnesia as we're going through life. So I greatly appreciate you sharing those words of wisdom. And to wrap things up, I've got one last segment, and that's in honor of your segment of 94 Feet with Jay Billis on College Basketball Game Day each Saturday. Uh, But I'm calling it the 35-second shot clock with Jay Billis, if that's all right with you. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll have 35 seconds for a few questions, and we'll start the clock now. All right. Here we go. Boys in the Hood or New Jack City? New Jack City. LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Uh, LeBron James. Ooh. Brady Bunch or Partridge Family? Oh, Brady Bunch. Not close. (laughs) The NFL or college football? Uh, NFL. Uh, Mercedes-Benz or BMW? Uh, BMW. And the last one... Did you ever get more tro- trophies than your brother?
1: I did. Yeah, I did. Uh although, you know, he's winning a lot of member guests now, so he might be <laughs> be back ahead of me, but but we both had well over 100 and I finally did I finally did clip them.
0: Oh, fantastic. And what's next on the horizon for you, Jay?
1: Just basketball season. Uh you know, it's coming up and I can't wait to start again. Uh when the when the leaves start to turn, that's when I know it's time. And uh and I always can't wait. Every new year brings brings even more fun than the year before. So Uh, the older I get, the more I enjoy what I do. So I can't wait for another year.
0: Well, I'm definitely looking forward to another season with you uh, at ESPN, uh, gaining your knowledge of college basketball and even the NBA draft as well. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. And, Jay, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Sounds great, Richard. It was great to be with you, and good luck with this whole thing.
0: Now, the only disappointment from that interview with Jay was the fact that I didn't get to spend three or four hours with him. I could have talked to him all day long obviously about basketball but about his journey as well and especially with the concept of him making a decision of where he was going to college not necessarily based on the school. Now that was important. He wanted to be at a big time program but when he compared the big time programs it was all about the coach and he wanted to have somebody that he trusted and connected and ultimately it was Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, and what better coach, obviously, to connect with now that we know he's on the Mount Rushmore of college basketball coaches. But at the time, he was not. He was an unknown entity just coming from Army and taking over the Duke program and recruited this unbelievable recruiting class with Jay Billis leading that recruiting class. And ultimately, it was about the connection that he had with Coach K, and he felt that it was more important to have that connection and trust with the coach than anything else. And then obviously, the whole NCAA rules, regulations, his opinions regarding that, I'm in firm belief with a lot of what he says and do believe in the free market. So I value his opinions. I've got my own opinions. And they actually overlap each other because I do feel the same as Jay, is that it's a free market. No other student has to be... Under these type of restrictions, any other student on scholarship can leave whenever they want to. They can earn money in any capacity that they want to. And I think the student athlete should be the same way. So it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses over the years and if it truly gets into the court systems from an antitrust regulation and what that will look like for these student-athletes in the next 10 to 15 years. I definitely think there's going to be some changes. What that looks like, I don't know 100%, but I know one thing. Jay Bill- Willis will be one of the leading voices out there, sharing his opinions and making sure that everybody is fully aware and has all of the knowledge out there because he is a wealth of knowledge from that standpoint. And for all of you out there that don't know, Jay is also a New York Times best-selling author as well. Back in 2014, he published a book called Toughness: Developing True Strength on and Off the Court, and it's talking about not just toughness necessarily from a sports perspective, but just in general, from a life perspective, because toughness is obviously been very hard to define. And he examines this misconception of what the definition of toughness is, and it's a great read. And building on that toughness theme, he also runs a camp in two different locations each summer, one in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And it's an old school type of basketball camp for young men ages 14 to 18, and really focusing on the fundamental skills that need to be developed, uh, obviously, to be a better individual player, but also for better team play. And in addition to that camp, he's also simultaneously running a coaches clinic as well, and it's a great opportunity for player development and coaching development. So if you want more information about that, go to jbilliscamp.com, and I know you can find all of the information there. And then, of course... Jay is a must follow on Twitter. You will love his opinions that he shares and also his young Jeezy, I got to go to work tweets each morning. They're hilarious and they'll get you going each and every day. So make sure to follow him on Twitter at Jay Billis. Now, let's move on and wrap this episode up with the weekly words of wisdom. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Let's explore the weekly words of wisdom. For this episode, our words of wisdom are going to come from another Duke Blue Devil, and that is Coach Mike Krzyzewski. And he's talking about just the qualities that make a team great, and it's obviously principles that he has believed in from day one and probably one of the reasons that it attracted Jay to Coach K initially. And his quote is, There are five fundamental qualities that make every team great. Communication, trust, collective responsibility, caring, and pride. I like to think of each as a separate finger on the fist Any one individually is important, but all of them together are unbeatable. So there is no doubt when you combine all of those together that it is unbeatable, and that's what makes a strong team even stronger. And obviously, that has been evident with the teams that Coach K has had at Duke, and even looking at coaching the U.S. teams as well internationally, we know the impact that he has had. And it's all about the communication, trust, collective responsibility, caring, and pride, no matter if it's a sport. Team or any organization, you have those, your team is going to be very, very strong. Well, that wraps up episode 27. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes
1: Sports. Thanks for listening.